0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a sex and intimacy coach and psychologist, and I have spent the last 30 plus years helping people to create hot and healthy sexual and intimate relationships. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Today, the letter is X and X is for X-rated. And joining me today is Jess O'Reilly at Sex with Dr. Jess. For those of you who follow her, and if you don't, you should. Uh, She's a sex and relationship expert with a background in education. Her research and passion involves teacher training in sexual health, and she volunteers in schools and universities to help bring better sex and relationship education to students across Ontario. Jess is also a television personality, author, podcast host, and it's at Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, an international speaker who's facilitated hundreds of corporate workshops and retreats in 35 countries from Lebanon to Costa Rica. Welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. So, um, education is definitely one of my, um, pl- my one of my soapboxes. Um, so, we're doing X for X rated. I thought it might be cool to talk about the role of pornography in educating and um, what we'd like to see
1: change um, so that we can inform kids more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, children and young people just generally have more access than ever before. And so the the data is there and the information is there and sometimes it's accurate and sometimes it's not. And because there is so much information out there, what we really need is, is context. Young people are already accessing this information. And so we need to be talking about what it is, right? What does it mean? How... Accurate does it you know does it really reflect our experiences? so there's a lot to break down when it, when it comes to porn, and I think people are afraid to talk to their their kids or young people in their lives about porn because they think that talking about it makes it real. but the reality is that it is real they're already accessing, accessing this, so we need to talk about you know, is that an accurate representation of most bodies? Do, do, do these videos depict? Accurate representations of what the relational elements of sex look like. What is missing? What is added? What is edited out? What are they doing off screen to facilitate these very specific acts on screen? Are these sex acts realistic in terms of what most people are doing? And of course, there are no averages and there are people who love exactly what they see on porn, but I think the bottom line is that porn serves multiple purposes, including titillation and entertainment and maybe even inspiration, but it does not explicitly serve the purpose of education. And what we know is, yeah, in the absence of sexual health education that includes the discussion of sex beyond the mechanics and sex including pleasure and porn in of itself, uh, ultimately, in the absence of that type of education, we know that people turn to porn for education because, you know, unlike every other area of our lives, whether it's cooking or gardening or playing a sport, we have context for all of those activities. We have observed each of those activities. Oftentimes, in detail with many different representations. You know, you, if you learn to cook, you don't just study French cuisine. You might be studying Thai cooking. You might be, you know, and, and when it comes to sex, we don't have that. We've never seen it for real in real life. Most people, I wish everybody did. I think it would be, it's life-changing to see real life people having real life sex. But in the absence of that, porn is porn becomes people's model. And of course, uh, you know, there are some costs to that.
0: I, I I completely agree. It's one of the things that I find so... Um, disconcerting is that so many so many parents still don't talk to their kids about sex at all
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: um, school programs tend to still focus on the mechanics if you're lucky you might get a little bit of something on consent but there's very little on the relational issues and if they do talk about pornography what they're talking about is telling you why you shouldn't watch it and Uh that it's not acceptable and the reality is is that whether you like pornography or not it's out there and our kids are accessing it. There it is. And if they're accessing it, this is what they think the norm looks like unless somebody tells them differently. So Absolutely. we need to be having these conversations and we also need to be, we also need I think we also need to have some good information. I get quite frustrated when I see um, bad science out there. So, you know, the opposite of the porn that's out there is the science that says that all porn is horrible and that it, you know, kills your brain, and it's, you know, as bad as drugs, and there's, all, you know, this addiction stuff, and it's it's just not true. And Ab- a-
1: yeah, I mean, if, if porn was so bad, we would see the world deteriorating as access to porn in- increases, and in fact, we've seen the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. As access to porn increases, we've seen Vi- and I'm not suggesting that porn is reducing violent crime, but we've seen these correlates of, for instance, lower rates of violent crime improvements generally in the world. I know it doesn't feel like that today that the world is getting better, but it is it is getting better in terms of, you know, a number of global outcomes. So you yeah, I think that's a really important piece that often gets left out is that, uh, you know, for example, access to porn can have very positive outcomes. For example, talking about what you like, what you don't like, what appeals to you, what makes you uncomfortable, what makes you feel vulnerable, what makes you curious. And so, you know, in in any anyone working in sex education or sex therapy, most of us have used porn as a tool for clients. And so, yeah, how can it be a tool for clients and in addition, destroying the world and destroying our brains? Uh, And and that is, you're right, that is bad science and there's a lot of cherry picking going on. Can porn be a problem? Of course. Too much water can be a problem. Too much food can be a problem. Too much money can be a problem. Uh, in fact, I'd I'd love to compare the effects of too much porn to too much money because we, we tend to see money as as primarily positive. But what are the effects of money on on our psychological and mental health well being? I don't. I, I, that'd be very interesting to look at. Uh, too much of anything can can be great. It can it can be problematic as well. And really, it's it's how we use it And porn gets scaped goaded, right? You cheated on your partner. Oh, you're addicted to porn. Uh, you'd rather masturbate watching a video than have sex with your partner. Oh, you're addicted to porn. No, wh- what about the fact that you and your partner are no longer communicating, that you're not investing in being intimate, that you're not, you know, that you're not kind to one another. Like porn is not the issue. Porn is not making people unkind. Now, of course, we want to talk about uh, you know, if we look at mainstream porn and the bulk of porn that's out there and the bulk of porn that becomes very accessible, we do want to talk about, you know, the way people communicate one another, with one another and how is that different along gender lines, along racial lines. These are important yeah. conversations. And and again, if we pretend our kids aren't watching porn, we're never going to have these conversations. And Absolutely. Yeah, and, and little kids are coming across it once in a while, not necessarily on purpose. And I guess you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to create shame around this so that they end up with sexual issues related to shame? Or do I want to ask questions and stay curious and let them know that I'm available as a resource? And, and I may not have all the answers, right? It's okay to be uncomfortable with a topic. Even those of us working in the field, we get uncomfortable in our own personal conversations. Absolutely. So I- imagine a parent with no training. So I'm really glad you brought this up. And we we need to start talking about um, all popular cultural representations of bodies, of gender roles, of sexualization related to race and ability and income and, and age and all of those things. And I always tell parents that one of the best ways to talk to young people about sex and relationships is to simply use pop culture. As an educational moment, like you see a scene on TV and you know you get all awkward, you can say to a young person, oh, what did you think about that? Or how are you feeling about that? Yep. Or do you have any questions? And oftentimes it's easier to speak about a third party. So you can talk about the way a fictional character spoke to a friend or to a partner or to a date. And it can be easier to discuss the related feelings because it's not about you and it's not about the parent. And it's, you know, same thing for yep. couples. Right. Yeah. So there's there's so much opportunity when it comes to popular media, including pornography.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I I am not um, as visual a person. So although I I mean, there is some visual pornography I like, I'm, I'm much more auditory. So I've just started an erotica podcast, for example, um, and getting authors to showcase their erotica. And for me, that was where I started as a teenager. There was no access to the there were no internet was no internet when I was a teenager. Um, and there was no access, easy access to movies. What there was easy access to was books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you're having problems in these areas, there are ways of approaching it. Um, there are ways of approaching the subject to give an alternative. If you're concerned about what your child is saying and, and the discussion is difficult, give them an alternative. Give them something else. Give them some education and then give them something else and remind them that this is fictional. The same as if they go to a movie, it's fictional. All of this is fictional, and that's fine. We love to tell stories and fantasies. As long as they're reminded that it's in the fantasy, it's easier to approach, it's easier to discuss. Like, yeah, would you do that in reality? Maybe not. But it's a great fantasy.
1: A- absolutely. And we, young people, six year olds, watch make believe all the time, and that they, they know there is no purple dinosaur. They know there is no man who can scale buildings. They know that, I mean, you can't just go through a magic door and get to another kingdom. They can differentiate between reality and fantasy. It's the adults who have difficulty doing that because they don't know what sex is supposed to look like. Yeah. We've, again, and I, I mean, you and I have seen real live sex among real live people, and that really is a, a privilege and I encourage everyone, adults listening, if you have the opportunity to even consider attending a sex party or a sex club or a resort to just talk about that possibility because you know, it changes the way you feel about your body. It changes the way you see sex. You see people of different ages and sizes and um, interests enjoying all different types of sex that isn't necessarily performative. Now, of course, there can be performative elements at a party. Of course, some people are exhibitionists, but uh, you're going to see such a variety of experiences. It's so eye-opening. And uh, we always say, you know, if, if kids see Uh, I I forget who gave me this example, so I'm sorry I'm not giving credit, but if kids see a car chase... In a movie, they don't assume that that's how you drive a car because they've seen thousands of cars on the streets. Right. But when we see sex in a movie and we've never seen it in real life, that becomes our only model, and so yeah. we have to remember that we get hung up on that. And I love your differentiation between fantasy and reality. Like you can get turned on by that, even though you'd never like to do it in real life. That can. Feel exciting for you in the moment, and then you, you might even talk about wanting to do it in the moment, but never actually want to do it in in the flesh. So, uh, you know, we have that we have a brilliant capacity as humans to differentiate between fantasy and reality, and so we need to do a better job of it when it comes to sex.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, for me, one of the things that's so much fun talking about that with with, and I've talked about it with adolescents the same um, in in teaching stuff is to say, look, so so we all have fantasies. And that doesn't say anything about orientation and it doesn't say, and people are always really surprised, you know, big guys, like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, I, I can have fantasize about gay male porn. Clearly I'm never going to be that. I don't want to change my gender. I'm quite happy with my gender. So why is that a turn on? Well, because it's a fantasy, just like you put yourself in the character of a book or the character of a movie and you and you imagine what it would be like to be that person or to live in that world, it's the same thing and it's a lot of fun. And so don't get hung up on what you are fantasizing about necessarily. Yes, it can give you clues to your sexuality. Yes, it might be something you want to do. It also might just be something that's fun for the moment. And there's no reason to lock yourself into anything. And yet with sex, for some reason, we teach kids that you know, this is like a done deal and locked in and nothing moves. And that's so contrary to all the research that we have and all the examples
1: that we have of how people are over a lifespan. Absolutely. And thank goodness, because how boring would sex get if there wasn't fluidity, right? If I was still doing... Today, what I was doing when I was 17 years old, I'd probably be over sex. I'd be out eating a salad instead. <laughs> but luckily, it's evolved over time. So that I think that's a very important piece. And of course, we love to get lost in fantasy. It's the reason we watch movies. It's the reason we read books. It's the reason we consume all forms of art or attend plays or theater. We, we love fantasy in every element of our lives, and we need to give ourselves permission to embrace that fantasy when it, those fantasies when it comes to sex as well and not have to get an, have an explanation for why yeah. I fantasize about this. Well, and that's the other thing which I always find
0: interesting. So when, um, when I see people, sometimes people will come in and they want to excavate. They want to know where did this come from? Why am I dominant? Why am I submissive? Why am I into water sports? Why am I into le- leather or latex? Like this is the big why. We want to go look for the big why. And my response is, is that, Actually, if you want to waste some money, I'm happy to take you down that road. It's going to cost a lot and it's going to waste your money. Because rarely do we find a why, a nice discreet why, right? Yeah. But better spend your money on getting comfortable with you. I'd rather spend the time with you getting rid of the shame, getting rid of the upset, getting you to the place where you're accepting your desires, you're being able to figure out if this is just fantasy or something you really want to do. That's a good way to spend your time and money. But going on this excavation, but we all have this sort of, I don't know if it's popular culture, if it's just inbuilt, but people
1: really, I mean, they come in, they're desperate to know why. I don't know. Well, and I think they're looking for an explanation because somehow we feel we have veered too far from normal. Yes. Right. So no, nobody comes in and says, why do I love romantic love and, and, you know, expressive sex where my partner lets them know I love, they love me. No, no one wants to uncover that. It's because we feel we've been forced to the margins. We feel we're too edgy. We're concerned that we're not normal. And so I'm sure that's, you know, a big part of the job we do is normalizing a range of experiences. And I, I love the way you put that, that we're never going to find a singular why. Like, there, there could be lots of reasons why. And tomorrow, you might not be into it anymore. And, and are we going to find out the why there? Maybe you're just bored of it. Maybe you've done it. Maybe you're, you know, you're over it. So, yeah, I think it's just really about getting people to feel good about who you are um, and what you like. And sometimes what you like is tied to your identity, and sometimes it's not. Yeah. Right? Like, I always think about, you know, for instance, there are people who identify as consensually non monogamous and it 's a big part of of their identity and the way they shape their relationships and then there are folks who are mostly monogamous, and once in a while they consent to do different things but it 's something they do as opposed to something they are it 's not a part of right. their identity and so some for some people it 's something you want to talk about, you want to meet with more people who are like you um, you know it 's a big part of your life, and for others it 's just something you do and I think we do need to differentiate between what we do, and who we are, and not assume that everything we do has to be tied, and I'm talking about sexual identity here, mm-hmm. tied to a specific identity. And, and it's interesting, because you've pro- you know, you've been around over the years where there's been a, uh, you know, the debate as to whether or not we need labels, right? Do mm-hmm. we need, and I, I've always been, because I think I, I feel quite fluid in many ways, because It's a lot of what I do sexually and relationally is not tied to my identity, some of it is. But I, I have always rejected labels and it might have to do with, you know, the age, the, the time in which I came up that we like, we don't need labels, labels are for soup Can. Now I see the value in labels. I, feel, I see the value in language, especially for populations that are otherwise marginalized. The language becomes important for galvanizing support and in some cases galvanizing movement. So it might be maybe like my age being a little bit more privileged where a lot of people have fought for this stuff for me that I can just be Jess <laughs> and I do what I do, um, but the privilege with which I live means that I don't always have to find a word for it, and that has made it less stressful for me. And so hopefully we see not not necessarily a decline in the use of labels, because if people find labels useful, let's use them, but just a, a decline in the need to search out a source for all of our interests and proclivities. Well, it's
0: interesting to me because um, labels have always been a difficult one for me because when I was coming up, you know, you had your, your label choices were um, straight, gay, and bi. Mm-hmm. So I, I used bi, but that's not accurate for me. I mean, I've talked a lot about this. My attractions have to do with power and energy. That's mm, okay. what attracts me. I, gender is completely irrelevant. I could right. easily end up. I could end up with a trans woman, a trans man, somebody non-binary, somebody mm-hmm. um, straight, or somebody gay. I mean, it, so same sex or opposite sex. It it completely fluid for me there because the gender part isn't the part that works for me,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: It's the power and it's the energy that works for me. And so, you know, for years I used bisexual in part because of bi invisibility and blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, now I say queer because I just get fed up because then someone will ask me, what do you mean by queer? And I can explain. Right. Were, and I know there are loads of other people like me, um, particularly because Sarri Van Anders has done this research with others and talked about... Um, sexual configuration theory where we're looking at axes with orientation that include dominance to submissive and non-monogamous to monogamous and stuff but it it's it's always really difficult to know whether to use the label or not use the label i'm just me that that's me this is me this is how i work but when you're actually trying to meet people and talk with people. It's difficult if you can't easily describe. I think partly because people don't have the attention span to listen to an explanation.
1: That, that's a good point. It's a shorthand communication, yeah. right? And I, and I think it can be useful at the beginning. And then as you dive deeper into the connection, the relationship, the sexual experience, you usually want more than that because it's something simple. Like if you think about, I might say to you, you know, are you into biting? Like, do you want me to bite you? And you can give me a simple yes, which is the shorthand, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yes. Where shall I bite you? At what point in the experience shall I bite you? How hard do you want to be bitten? What type of bite do you want? You know, do you want me to use the back of my teeth or just the nibble fronts? And and so we do communicate in shorthand, uh, for expediency, as you said, partly to do with attention span, and I think what we're trying to do in our work is get people to have more long form communication. Yes, absolutely. And even people, and I I see this all the time because I tend to work with um, folks who are not necessarily expert in the field. They're most, it's entrepreneurs and CEOs and their partners. And so they haven't put a ton of time into studying sex and relationships. And even the ones who have been together 20, 30 years, and they're in these long-term, fairly happy relationships, they'll say to me when I give them an exercise, oh, no, no, we know everything about one another. And then, you know, they get to the first question. They're like, oh, we've never thought of this. And so, well, it makes sense that you are not satisfied with your sexual frequency. You're not on the same page. You have trouble opening up about sexual fantasies. Uh, You feel nervous or shame around your partner. You worry about being judged because shorthand communication has helped you to understand simple things. Are you into this? Are you into that? But we haven't dove deeper yet into all of the emotional underpinnings yep. of every exchange. You know, whether it's it's a casual partner or a long-term partner, emotions are always involved in any human interaction. And so we want to look a little deeper at, at their sexual values. You know, I just, I don't know if you know, I just wrote a book with Marla Renee Stewart. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's called Love The Yeah, it's called The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay, and we're exploring erotic theory in this book, but really what I think, where I think the take-home value is, is that we've provided people with hundreds of prompts, uh, so like questions and conversation starters to do on your own or with a partner or partners to better understand your own sexual values, the, the emotional, the relational, the practical, the physical, for some people the spiritual, all the components of of sexual interactions that could possibly come into play, right? Because we arrive at relationships having never studied our own sexuality, and then oftentimes we complain that, you know, a partner isn't meeting my needs. They don't know how to do this, or they're not doing this, or they don't understand that I need it this way, but we don't even understand ourselves. Well,
0: that's where we end up starting most of the time. I mean, um, and, um, I will be using some of the, the stuff you guys came up with and of course, crediting you because it's great. I, I urge you guys to have a look at this book. It's fab. It's really user-friendly and that's what I like about it. It's it's super user-friendly um, and there's so much variety. And I, I often start with clients. The place I'm starting is, do you know what you desire? Yeah. Have you ever sat down and, so you know there is this sort of thing. Whereas if your desires are outside the norm, you probably know more about what you desire because you're outside the norm, and you realize that the norm didn't work. Um, and you may have realized that from very young, and just felt you were very odd. You know, when I I just put out my erotic memoir, which oh where, yeah, it's really cool. I, I can I put a piece of erotica with a piece of life story with some analysis about some of the emotional themes just oh what is
1: that called
0: it's called dancing the edge to surrender an erotic memoir of trauma and survival and it's fab um it was so much fun to write it's it's difficult because my life is intense so it's difficult for some people but one of the things i want people to explore is what does what first of all what kind of a grasp do you have on your own reality I talk a lot about gaslighting because a lot of people have been gaslit, even if they haven't been in other areas, areas of their life. They have been around sex and sexuality because when they brought things up with parents at, when they're younger, they've been told not to trust their own feelings, not to trust their own instincts. Um, this is uncomfortable. Don't bring this up. This is not okay. This is not acceptable behavior. This is, you shouldn't feel this way. And so they don't learn how to know what works for them. They attach to somebody else's reality outside of them. And Mm -hmm. undoing that is pretty intense. And if you had that happen emotionally across the board, what happens is you're then set up for a lot of dangerous situations because you're looking for an external rudder instead of trusting your gut about what's safe, what's dangerous, what's okay, what's not okay. Which, of course, all of those things are defined by what is okay for you. So, you know, I end up starting with people at the place of, well, do you really know what you want? And I would say 80% of the time people don't.
1: No, and I think, um, like, even, even when I think about what I do and all of the work and all of the tools, I find that, like, I need to go back and revisit them because I don't always know what I want. I, you know, it's always shifting and what I can admit to is that I don't always invest the time I could and I should, or I'd like to into this because life just kind of zooms by and, you know, now we've, you know, in 2020, we've hit pause a little bit. Yep. And we've we've had more time for contemplation, uh, which can be very scary if you've been avoiding this. And so I love the idea of sharing, uh, you said it's an erotic story, part of your story like your life experience and then a little bit of is it analysis or
0: it is it's a little bit of analysis and, and then actually what i'm doing at the moment is writing the companion book which is a self help book which That's, is a-
1: I see that as so useful to my clients around letting go of shame because That's, yeah just yeah. hearing another person's story um so both the sexual along with the kind of lifestyle stuff Uh, And then then some expert analysis. I think that would be really useful as a a tool for letting go of sexual shame because almost every client and all all of us arrives with some sort of shame that we have to undo. And we've got sexual shame and it it ties into, for many of us, like our ethnocultural backgrounds, our our race or how we're perceived in terms of race. And so I I see that as a tool that everybody can use.
0: I mean, for me, the reason for writing, people say, well, why did you write this book? It's so revealing. And it really is. It's like, incredi- you know, if you read this, you know, everything I like. Okay. Um, and all the out there stuff, not that the easy stuff to communicate to people, not the stuff that people don't go, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, that's interesting. No, all the out there stuff. And the reason for it was because for me, in order to get to be an authentic, full human being. This was the path I had to take. And getting rid of shame was the hugest thing. And the last piece was being able to own the things that I really, you know, the, the, the more I owned, all of my desires are, are outside the norm, but I owned part of it, but I wasn't willing to own the rest. Hmm. And some of that was complicated by some sexual trauma. So I knew I liked something. I had the sexual trauma where somebody did it to me non-consensually. And then... um then I had the problem of, but it turned me on, but it didn't turn me on. This wasn't consensual. This was, and a lot of people who've experienced sexual trauma have been turned on at some point during the trauma. Some of that's arousal non-concordance, but some of it can be actual desire and teasing that out afterwards and dealing with the fantasies afterwards and the self-hatred that comes with that is the part that nobody talks about because we're not supposed to talk about that, you know, and not, not everybody experiences. This, But enough people that I've come across in 30 years of working with people, and it's my own life experience that I felt, you know what, I need to talk to these parts of shame because if you don't get through this, then you don't get that relational connection with another. It's amazing to be in relationships now
1: where I get my needs met. Mm -hmm. And even with yourself, because if you're denying yourself Mm -hmm. that peace, and of course, I mean, of course, as a survivor, you're not looking for the silver lining, and that's not what you're suggesting. No. You're saying that this this pre existed, um, and it's likely because it's it's likely attached to the the reality that for most of us, this broad range of desires already exists. Yep. And so, some if we could be turned on by almost anything, if we, if the if if as individuals we have the capacity for that, it's really about how much do we shut down yep. versus how much do we embrace? So oftentimes, we, as you said, to go back kind of full circle to, oh, why? Why am I turned on by this specific out-of-the-norm, out-of-the-box scenario or interaction? Well, it's not really that you are turned on by it. It's that all of us probably have the capacity to be turned on by it. And so many of us, most of us, shut it down. So maybe yep. we should lo- be looking at why people are not.
0: <laughs> yes, And why are, why are we all shutting down so much of desire? I think that's, that's accurate. I mean, for me, it's so interesting because I'm, I was well aware of what my desire was before this, re- this relationship. I, yeah, it was a relationship initially for a very short period of time. And then, um, then the sexual violence and then afterwards. And so my actual turn ons didn't change. What changed was how I felt about them. What also changed was the fact that I realized that probably in part for people who have been gaslit and don't have good boundaries as a result, I was really attractive to this guy because I didn't have the kind of strong boundary and strong sense of what's dangerous and when to run that somebody else who didn't get come up in that environment would have. And predators are good at their job. They look for the weakest person. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's not a blaming thing. It's an understanding because once I understood that and did the work, I'm not attractive to predators like that anymore because I pick up too quickly. I move on too quickly. I have skills I didn't have. And that the part of it for me that I want people to understand is that, A lot of these things that we're missing are skills. It's not something wrong with you. You're just missing some skills. And we can teach those skills. We can teach people how to reality test. We can teach people how to set a good boundary. We can teach people how to trust themselves again. There's a lot of skills that sometimes you don't get growing up that are at the genesis of why we get into situations that we do. And so... I think for some people, it's really much easier when they know it's not, well, there's something wrong with you, right? Right. Oh, why do I always make these bad choices? Well, did you ever learn how to make a good choice? Why don't we look at how you make a good choice? How do we do that? And so if you've got active trauma, yes, you need to work on that until you're able to be in the present. And that's definitely a thing. But There's also like this whole ball of skills that people often are missing bits and pieces of that make it hard for them to relate to themselves, to deal with their emotions and to relate to others. And we're all works in progress. I mean, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing well because I do my work and I have to keep doing my work. (laughs) It's never going to stop. Right. I always think that's something that people, you know, around sex and relationships,
1: for some reason they think they're finished. They, yeah, we, we think that we can take a workshop or read a book or develop an understanding, but you you hit the nail on the head. The knowledge and understanding is really the tip of the iceberg. You have to go deeper. And practice the behavioral skills. And when you've been practicing the opposite of those constructive behavioral skills your entire life, it's not as simple as, oh, I can do one role play or I can read this one line. We have to continue to enact it. And that can be scary because then you're put in the situations where you have to actually enact those skills and access those tools. And so I I guess that takes us back to why people go to see professionals. Why do people come speak to you so that you can actually? practice those skills, not just so we can go back to our childhoods and lie on a couch and talk about why am I into sniffing these dirty underwear or why am I into this type of, of, you know, type of interaction, but to really think, okay, so when this comes up and it turns me on, how can I do things differently so that I am not in a situation that, you know, makes me uncomfortable and at the same time I can access that fantasy or play with that turn on. Um, and so that reconciliation sounds really interesting. I'm curious as to, as you wrote this book, uh, and you said that if somebody were to read this book, they would fully, they'd really understand you. So could you give it to a lover <laughs> to have have cultivate? To. And, and then I guess the next question for me as a teacher becomes, could somebody create a similar tool for themselves? Could Absolutely. writing out their own erotic experiences, aligning it with their, life experiences and then maybe they don't even need an expert commentary even just commentating commenting as a third-party spectator what can they learn about themselves in that and how can they you know let their partners in on the insight now I know not everyone's a writer but so many of my clients uh, find writing therapeutic and what a what an incredible therapeutic tool that could be
0: Absolutely. I mean, so I've been writing erotica since I was 12. My erotica when I was 12 was horrible. I'll just say that right now. My my poetry wasn't bad, but the erotica, I didn't have male anatomy correct. So just say it was awful, but I've been writing since I was 12. Um, And so I collected all this erotica. And what I did was look at contemporaneous pieces in some cases. In other cases, explan- just pieces that I felt reflected the theme. Um, so somebody could easily do this as a tool for themselves. I also think it's really useful for people to look at their erotic history in more detail other than in a black and white sense. Mm-hmm. Like, write it like a story. If you don't like to write, speak it like a story. Mm-hmm. Talk about it like a story. Mm-hmm. Or draw you know, it. You know, draw it, whatever. Use the medium that works for you and figure out what actually turns you on. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in the story, that's when you know what turns you on more easily. You're looking back, but you're actually in it. Um, and, then, and then, you know, look at that, compare it to the relationships you have, and make some, create some insight into what goes on for you. You don't necessarily need a professional to do that. I would certainly do it with clients. I teach um, a, a mastermind, a small mastermind on, on writing a book and getting it wow. published. Um, But I'd love to do one on doing this kind of, on doing basically what I would call erotic journaling. Right. Right. You know, that would be like erotic journaling. And so you look at your life and you look at erotica, maybe you'll put some of it out as fiction. Maybe you won't. But the important part of this is the process that you're going through. Um, I found it really useful to share with lovers. Um, It's also really scary Mm -hmm. because it's all right there. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's different when you have the conversation with somebody, when somebody says, I bought your book.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and that's a challenge to just sort of being in the public eye. Yes. Uh, especially, especially as you're getting to know new partners. If, yeah. I don't know if you're in that, in that circumstance, yeah. but, uh, you know, even if they were to go back and listen to all of your podcasts, Absolutely. And all of your pieces, uh, you know, in a, in a relationship where we don't live our lives in the public eye, you, you have the opportunity to, reveal information uh, a little bit more like a drip campaign, a little bit more slowly. Yeah, and it really is ultimately your choice when you divulge. But when you're in the public eye, oftentimes people have read your work or seen your work or consumed your work prior to having met you. Um, Now, nobody's read it or, or consumed it in its entirety, so they know bits and pieces of you highly intimately. And then there's other areas where they know nothing about you.
0: Well, and what's interesting is, and because my most of my well, all of my relationships really are are um, have a power exchange in them, um, and I have had this experience. I am in the process of having this experience with a relatively new relationship hmm. um, that is a, a very uh, that's a serious power exchange, and which I'm very happy with. But he's he's read a lot of my stuff, you know, and and listened to a lot of my podcasts, and you know, and. and there is something about a person actually being able to hear contemporaneously what you were thinking at a particular time mm-hmm. that is really kind of, it really does cement the power exchange. I'll just say that. I'm like, ooh, and I, you know, and I blush when I think about it.
1: Okay. I'm
0: smiling, but that's because I love this, right? So mm-hmm. I'm happy with it. It could also be awkward. It could seriously okay. be awkward. Um, there could be a situation where somebody you know reads something
1: and makes an assumption that or, would be my thought. That yeah. would be my concern is is the piece around assumption that just because you know something about somebody from one particular piece of media uh, doesn't mean you don't have to fully negotiate, you know, consents.
0: And, um, and, there, and there's there's no problem with that in the relationship I'm in, you know, that it provokes questions and it gets the negotiation and going in interesting places because we've got, a, we've got a starting point. And if you find it difficult to talk, that can
1: be very useful absolutely yeah and that just really speaks to the power of what erotic writing can can bring to the relationship and all these different tools that don't have to be traditional psychotherapy because i think when people think of working on their relationship or improving communication uh, especially western folks think that you know you need to you need to go to a professional in this capacity but there are all these other creative outlets and and ancient civilizations of course have been working on the on developing these skills and tools for centuries in very different ways with very different rituals and approaches approaches
0: absolutely and and, you know the reality is you can go see a coach and and get some help or there's lots out there um and for me like i tell people if you don't want to write your own words find somebody's words you like Hmm. right if you're uncomfortable writing go find the stuff that turns you on Mm -hmm. and share it with somebody yeah highlight it (laughs) yeah it starts a conversation look this is the piece or if you don't even want to do that if that's even more scary Fine. Just say, "Look, I was reading this. I wondered, wondered if you, what you think of it, and watch their response." I mean, there's so many different ways. But believe it or not, we are almost out of time. This has been so much fun.
1: Oh, it's been, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so interested in your book. I know that, um, I, you know, you're interviewing me, but I need to, I need you to give I'll us some information.
0: You, I'll send you a link with all the details. Um, awesome. Could you please tell people what's the best way for them to find you?
1: Hi, you can find me at sexwithdrjess.com and happiercouples.com. So that's
0: great, guys. Next week, we will be back with why. Um, and why um, is an acronym next week, so I'm not going to be able to say it out for you because I'm really bad at that right now. But um, I've got Shawnee Love joining me, and that should be an absolute blast. Um, I, I Yeah, no, I'm not going to even try. So it'll be a surprise. Um, and... Don't forget if you've got suggestions for the show, people you'd like to hear from topics you want to hear about, or you just have questions that haven't gotten answered. It's Lori Beth at drloribethbisbee.com. The new podcast is Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee's erotic library. It can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. You can also find it on drloribethbisbee.press, which is my book website and on my Patreon page. And guys, um, if you want the extra, extra special perks for that podcast, that means beyond just the erotic readings, then you've got to join my Patreon because that's how we're funding the, the um, podcast, the equipment, and all that sort of stuff. And that's um, patreon.com forward slash Laurie Beth Bisbee. And you get, um, let's see, so far we've got interviews. We've got some specimens of... Um, an erotic graphic novel. I mean, authors are being really cool and they're offering lots of fun stuff and I'm offering lots of fun stuff. So do just join the Patreon to get the extras. But if you don't want to, you still can grab it and listen to the erotica. Let us know if there are authors you want to hear from. I'll see you all next week. Have a good one.